Area 52, Operation Main Base UFOs. At the time, immediately, I didn't feel frightened. I did as secretly feel we're looking at something that really we shouldn't be seeing. I remember being told on landing that I fairly looked fairly shaken, almost as if I had seen the gun. Air Commander Michael Sweeney, OBE, RAF, retired. October 20, 2002, marked the 50th anniversary. What would be the most impressive UFO incident ever reported to the Ministry of Defence? A sighting involved two highly experienced military pilots whose visual report was backed up by two independent radar blocks. Yet details and amazing story remained an official secret for half a century until the key witness agreed to be interviewed during the research for a book called Out of the Shadows and a BBC for production, Britain's Secret Exiles, broadcasted in April 2002. 1952 marked a turning point in the terms of British government's interest in the UFO enigma. In the previous year, the final report of the Flying Saucer Working Party had recommended no further investigations of aerial phenomenon to be undertaken by the MOD. Then in July 1952, UFOs were tracked by radar and pursued by interceptors by Washington, D.C. The USAF were obliged to hold an unprecedented press conference and attempt to play down the law. News of the Washington flap reached Winston Churchill, who famously asked his minister for a briefing on the subject of flying saucers. He sure as if nothing to worry about. Unfortunate that Churchill did not, as far as we, did not pursue this. But incredible series of events occurred during the autumn 1952 that proceeded to change the attitude of both the MOD and the Air Force. Of uh, uh, Royal Air Force, a society made by airmen and royal personal personnel that took part in the NATO exercise main brace staged in September 1932 to simulate a Soviet invasion of Western Europe according to Captain Edward Rupert who led the USAF's Project Blue Book. A high level interest while major, major sightings generally did a re- re- reflected a sen- sensational memorandum repaired by the CIA's assistant Director of Scientific Intelligence, Dr. H. Marshall, Treadwell in December 1952, the memo, British Activity in the Field of UFOs, made it secret for 50 years. Under the American Freedom of Information Act, the work of British Flying Saucer Working Party, 1950-51, prodded to CIA director how the MOD had forced to take a second lot of UFO direct the main base instance. It covertly reformed a British UFO working party under D and Dr. R.A.V. Jones, who are the new director of scientific intelligence on MOD. Treadwell reported how Jones was distressed at newspaper coverage of the sightings. Reported by military personnel, particularly those left of Shackleton pilots by the, at the RF tip cliff in Yorkshire that had made headlines across the globe.
Although the typically innocent received wild publicity, this, the more suspected little read the report was successfully kept secret. Formal query, Air Marshal Sir Peter Holsley told how he was personally notified of the report, but as he was about to leave England, the Royal Tour of Australia was able to interview the aircraft crew for his study on behalf of Prince Philip. As the case with the Melbourne sighting, Ray Brace, a little incident incident occurred in the midst of a major military exercise, codenamed Ardent. Flying source is the last thing on flight of Lieutenant Merkel Sweeney's mind when he ran, climbed in the cockpit of Motor Trainer's Jet on 21st of October 1951. Sweeney was a staff instructor based in an RAF Flying Saucer School, a little incident in Gloucestershire, where his job was to provide tuition to the Royal Air Force and Fleet Arm student instructors. Seated behind him was his student for the day, Royal Navy Lieutenant David Cross. In, entered in the flog book Exercise 18, described as a low-level country flight that would take the two men on a southwesterly course towards the turning point of the southwest, where he returned to Little Winsington. Sweeney, who was instructed, was instructing, occupied the front seat as a student was seated directly behind him, a small cockpit. As the aircraft taxied across the runway, there was nothing to suggest that this exercise would be any different to any a normal day. But this one changed the rest of their lives. Sweeney described how the meteor jets punched for the air layer crowd about 15,000 feet. He suddenly got the flight with life when it appeared to be smacked in front of the airplane. Three white or nearly white circular objects, two of them had a, were on a keen level keel, and one of them canted a slight angle to one side. He thought, God almighty, this is this is three chaps coming down on parachutes, and literally took the stick or pole, as he used to call it, out of David's hands so he couldn't tear through the, those these parachutes. He issued them some sort of expletive. What on earth's going on? Dave, take a look at this. If there was something supernatural, I was immediately thought of, of course, saucers. Because it's actually what they looked like. They were not leaving a conversation trail, as I knew we were. They were circular and appeared to be stationary. They continued to climb twice the height to 30,000 feet, as we did that, in fact, change position. They took on a slightly different perspective. For example, the higher we got, the money lost their circular shape and took a more flat plate's appearance, like when they held hold of tea saucer above your head and look at it, and then just bring it down to your eye level. It loses circular shape and becomes a flat plate. At one time, the objects, which are still very much in the view, appear to go from one side to the other, and then to make quite sure it was not an illusion caused by us, by us in the eye plane moving to one side, check that we were absolutely still, very steady heading, and sure enough, they moved across to the starboard side of the aircraft. The meteor levelled at 35,000 feet. The three strange objects remained clearly visible. The saucer plate shaped slightly off colour, 
white in colour, emitted a fuzzy or incessant light from their edges. They had no visible signs of propulsion, portholes, turrets, or any other telltale sounds that would identify them as conventional aircraft. According to the version recounted by Sir Peter Hosley, instructor Sweeney found it difficult to take in that was seeing and thought he was suffering from oxygen failure. Dr. Croft's words. Hosley, in 2002, he said, I remember doing the the twenty in the, the thirty five thousand foot check and that Mike who was in the front seat said, Dave, did you have anything to drink or, or at lunchtime? I said, Why no why? He said, Is your oxygen on? I replied, Mick, we just done the thirty thousand foot check. And you and you checked with me that your oxygen was all right. I checked with you that my oxygen was all right. Then he said, Well look at that, straight ahead. Mick who was in the front seat put his hand to one side. I looked straight through the D window, and there were three dots ahead. Initially, they wouldn't have been bigger than my thumbnail at arm's length. There were certainly three of them. I looked up from time to time, and saw that they were, were approaching, and getting down further, and further apart. When I saw something, I saw, looked at like the bottom of stem glass, its lens shaped like clips, and the sun was behind them. There's no cloud at that height. It was impossible to tell the size of them, how they away, how far away they were. I was thinking all the time. I got to make this a good exercise. Didn't want to muff this up by looking around, by seeing these things. But Mick kept talking about them, and saying we thought the UFOs. I thought, oh well, let's go after them. Thinking, well, now we can stop doing the exercise. We can officially say we're off the hook. But he did, but he didn't. He said, oh, Lord, don't you remember something that happened on the west coast of Africa where a couple of pilots went after one of these things and all they got vapoured and they never seen since. I asked him what he was intended to do. He called air traffic control at Little Ratsiton and said he could see. And within a few minute time, short time, he said, I've got to take control. I have control. You've turned the aircraft and he headed back to base. He got to the top of the climb. I just decided that really there was much, nothing much I could do. I was too shaken by what I'd seen and decided to call the exercise off, go back to base. I called up air traffic control in Rizzerton and said I had three undivided objects close, fairly close, and gave them my course. I understand later there was a certain amount of pandemonium on the ground because it wasn't used to having their staff in structures calling up saying we have three undivided flying objects in front of what do we do? They didn't have what they didn't know what to do either. It was quite extraordinary as we kept them under observation, thinking that what else could they possibly be? All of a sudden, having looked across at them, one moment they looked back in another direction, just as clear one's eyes a bit. We looked back and they certainly weren't there. They had just disappeared. I hadn't been flying from I have been flying many years. For about nine years I had seen many reflections reflections through widescreens windscreens and lots of other things. But this is nothing of the sort. We tried very hard to explain away what we were looking at. But all there's no way we could do that. There's some there's nothing out there's something out there. There's absolutely no doubt about it. It was not a reflection. On the ground, unknown to the men at the time, 
in the control tower, Little Remerson. They called it HOQ Fighter Command at Stanford, near London. Stanmore, near London. At the height of Cold War, the fierce Soviet attack looming. Senior officers triggered an Air Force defense alert. Simultaneously, with a meter of pilots, a vigil report. RAF Sophie, a ground controlled interception. GCI radar in southern England was tracking undivided aircraft moving across the southwest of England. Subpolice controller alerted the commander of RAF southern sector of Randall Manor between Chapman and Bath in Wiltshire. The nerve central sector known as the RAF box was an underground bunker containing a signals HQ, a fighter fighter putting control room where aircraft movements were monitored over the whole of southern England. All underdivided bleaks are treated as hostile until possibly identified. A pair of meters on 24-hour quick reaction alert, QR duty at RAF Tingsmere, Sussex, screamed in the air, were vectored towards the underdivided radar target under Sophia's control. Sir Peter Hosley, officers in the filter room at Rondell Manor were, were able to identify Sweeney's meter on a plotting table as it closed in on the identified blips and suddenly disappeared off the tube at a speed estimated of a thousand uh, miles per hour. The team meteors at Tangmore followed the target but failed to make contact. They were maximally uh, uh, described from memory how he's turned a little whims in. Wimsendale was informed at the radar station, you'd think a place called a box somewhere in the bath area, Cronin's could see exactly. But it was at their radar screen that posed as visible. They also told me that the UFOs had picked up a radar. I saw he seen Sophie's radar, Sophie's CCR north of Ringwood. Hampshire, you've certainly said that the fighters alerted and scrambled the target with ground speed of 600 knots or 600 miles per hour. Heading east, but the pilots saw nothing, didn't make a contact and returned to base. Further confirmation came in this November 2002 when a retired UF RAF signals officer, Terry Barefoot, contacted us with his own story. He told... He used to work at the underground complex as a switchboard operator. In nineteen fifty two, remember the telephone call received from the GCI station. A radar station called up saying that three objects had entered our space, doing a fantastic speed approximately three thousand miles per hour. He had nothing they went he had nothing that went that fast. Neither had the Russians or the Americans. He said the incident occurred, caused a commotion in the control room, led to an order to scramble a squadron to instep UFOs. Four pilots had been vectored towards the fast-moving blitz. They disappeared from the fighting tables. Still formation off the coast of Kent and towards the English Channel. A central well by UFO, by RAF signals, relaying messages between the RAF stages. During the RAF UFO alert, may explain another intriguing feature of the incident. For it appears that GCO, the government's secret listening station at Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, 
or made fully aware of the events that took place. In 1997, researcher Robin Cole privately circulated a booklet researching GSOHO role alleged UFO cover-up. Drawing upon sources worked there. Cole wrote about the earliest UFO cases that were linked to the secret listening posts occurred. In 1952, when pilots of the RAF, Little Remington, were out to manoeuvres when in their sights and the familiar objects. Switch and flying saucer came to view. Flight Lieutenant M.G. Sweeney, instructor, and Lieutenant David D. Cross, orange student, sighted three mysterious saucer-shaped objects travelling at high speed about 35 miles, whilst on the high-level navigation exercise in Meteor V11. Later, ACC Gossager reported radio plots to confirm this, but the ministry discounted any possibility of extraterrestrial objects. The Air Ministry investigation, as soon as we disembarked, Wing Commander following, flying grabbed a pair of us and came to, out of the aircraft. I remember rightly, he told us to go to my cabin. If not to talk to anyone, all my meals were brought to me. If I wanted anything to drink, I was to get in touch with someone to get them for me. I was to go to the bar. Mike was to go home forthwith and stay with when he reported Wing Commander flying the next morning. I was there to, to, at nine o'clock. There was a couple of officers from the Air Ministry Intelligence Section who debriefed us separately. They interviewed us and got us to talk about it and draw what, what we thought we saw. Talking, thinking back, I didn't think that right, they asked the right questions. They gave me an impression that they were very high-powered. I didn't, wouldn't have thought they were any higher than squadron leader in rank. I have no opinion that they didn't know how much know much about what it was about. They said, yes, we're looking into it. I gave an impression that we've seen something unusual, but I got the impression they were just going through a routine. What did you see? What happened? Tell us your story. Much the same as that they've done now. It is so in the detail. You've gone into, they should have perhaps tried to locate where you were when we saw them. They told us, we told him, me, they had been in the communication with every country in the world that likely to have sold aircraft in the vicinity of time. They agreed they didn't. The only thing they think it was, or we happened to see, were three Bell X supersonic aircraft that at the time were doing the sort of thing in loose formation over the UK, all the way from the USA. But of course it was not possible for the aircraft we had. It was impos- not impossible for the, with the Bell X-100. Any other remote possibility, considering lunar clouds. But I remember saying to the basement medical officer afterwards, and it's asking, if it's any possibility, it could have been a lunar cloud, or any cloud at all. And he replied, David, there's no possibility of there being any clouds above when you broke through the cloud base. Was it a cover-up by the water hole? This is from an air command Mike Sweeney later on. I was in a position to say I wanted to see the report. I had written in 1952 
I simply said, I want to see it. The next thing was one near my star where I have group captain blocked it on my desk. The file was attained from the Air Force Intelligence of Branch, who inherited the D-Tech Branch, an officer who recovered the file it had been located in the Blue Book. So I had to look at it. It was all there. It remembered rightly. I saw David Cross report. which was attached to it. I looked at it, and it was satisfied. I put it in the archway. I should have have taken a copy there and then. Now we t- uh, he tried to make a, a um, 2002, he tried to make a fresh attempt to cover his original report, but when he wrote to the RAF historical branch, now based at the old fighter command, HQ at Bentley Pari, he said that the UFO report submitted the IAF Ministry of Reserve for transfer to PRO. Not satisfied with the paint, paint, he said he wanted a copy report. He would apply in the civil terms, said an archive search, with failed to locate the file. This went on for a couple of years until it was found recently.